Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 25, and then I'll pray. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would receive this as it is the word of the Lord. That we would receive this as the word from the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, superintended by his spirit, not only for the Hebrew Christians, but for your church in every age. Give us clarity as we work through this text. Help us to rejoice and repent. Cause us to be thankful for the glorious privilege that is ours in the new covenant and to be mindful of the exhortation that we not refuse to listen to the Son of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Hebrews is a book that throughout this letter, or as I have told you since we've been at the beginning, this probably sermon in written form, this exhortation throughout, is calling Christ's people to listen to Christ's voice. It starts that way. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers in the prophets. In these last days, the days we're now in, He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I missed a little phrase there. He sustains or upholds the universe by the word of his power. We're to listen to him. He is the one who speaks to us. And this letter is reminding us of the gospel message that he spoke and that he speaks to us. And it's calling us, this letter, to rejoice in our inestimable privilege of being new covenant saints. And what is that privilege? Here's the privilege. In Christ, we can all draw near to God in the Holy of Holies, where he dwells, to worship him. The old covenant saints did not have that privilege. They were kept out of the Holy of Holies. They had a priest who entered and only once a year and after making purification for his own sins would enter on their behalf, but they could never follow him in and he could never remain there. But Christ, who did not need purification for his sins because he was holy, sinless, undefiled, entered the Holy of Holies and has carried us in with him so that we can now draw near to God and worship. Further, Hebrews is warning us. So it's not only telling us of our glorious privilege, it's warning us, it's exhorting us of the dire consequences of refusing to listen to Christ. Here's the great privilege if you listen to him. Here's the warning if you refuse to listen to him. And today's passage is like 
a summary of the book in a nutshell. As we worked through the letter, we found that there were these sections of doctrine where you're getting this kind of exposition of the good news in the new covenant versus what was happening in the old covenant, and then you would get these exhortations, and then another exposition, another exhortation. And now here we get a kind of exposition and exhortation together as I get a summary of the book in a nutshell, if you will. As we look at this passage, I want you to see really two points this morning. The first is a grave exhortation that's been given to us in verses 25 through 27. A grave exhortation. I was looking for a word like serious or I couldn't figure out what kind of exhortation. I pick grave because you hear it and go, ooh, that sounds bad. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, so a grave exhortation has been given to us, verse 25 to 27. And second, a glorious reality that is ours. A glorious reality that is ours in verses 28 and 29. So those are our two major points this morning, which will have subpoints as a heads up. Let's look at the first one, a grave exhortation that's been given to us. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. We can translate this, see to it, or to put it another way, beware lest you refuse him who's speaking. It's a warning. Pay attention here. See to it you don't refuse him who's speaking. We should not refuse to hear him who is speaking. We're to listen to him. Now, this is the kind of listening that is hearing with faith and obedience. It's not just make sure you can sort of decode the sounds coming in your ears and you know what that sounds like. It's not the kind of hearing that happens when my wife is talking and she says, are you listening to me? And I say, yes. And I can sort of piece together what I think she said. <laughs> not that kind of listening. The kind of listening where you're hearing and then you're doing. It's the kind of listening we have in Deuteronomy, in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Trust him. Obey him. Now, they're called to listen for three reasons. And this is kind of your subpoints, if you will. They're warned about the need to listen or exhorted to listen for three reasons. First, because of who is speaking. Second, because of from where he speaks. So who's speaking, from where he speaks, and third, because of what he speaks. So you hear that? Who, where, what? Easy enough? Let me take those in order. Who is speaking to them? Well, simply God is speaking to them. Look at the second part of Hebrews 12, 25. After it says, see to it that you do not refuse him who's speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. So here's the question. Who is they who were warned on earth? Who are they? Well, they're Israel at Mount Sinai. If you remember, God's people, Israel, were in slavery in Egypt. And God brought them out of Egypt and took them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai where God spoke to them and made a covenant with them. And they refused. You likely remember the story. He brought them the covenant and spoke to them at Mount Sinai and they began to refuse. How do they do that? Well, Moses was on the mountain getting the law, the Ten Commandments, if you will, the content of the covenant. While he's there getting it, they are making a golden calf and worshiping it. And they are having a kind of, to be fully clear what the text comes at it, especially in 1 Corinthians 10, a kind of idolatrous orgy. And Moses returns and sees this mess, and he throws the Ten Commandments on the ground, and then calls the Levites who bind swords to themselves and they come out and they slaughter several thousand people. 
that's the first time they refuse to listen to him, but not the last time. They continue not to listen to him on more than one occasion, so they can't enter the promised land in the first generation. We have the period of judges where they don't listen. You guys understand, this keeps happening. They're a lot like us. If you read their story, you think, this is my life, but not as a nation. God delivers the law of Moses to them, and as we read in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the earth shook when he spoke to them. The earth shook. We read that both in Exodus 19 and 20 and in Deuteronomy 4 and 5, that the earth shook as he spoke at Mount Sinai. But here's my point. Who spoke to them there? Who spoke to them at Mount Sinai that caused the earth to shake? Well, the Lord, Yahweh, the God who created the heavens and earth, their Redeemer who brought them out of Egypt. The speaker at Mount Sinai is clearly God. Now, it might seem like Hebrews 12.25 is referring to two different voices, but it's the same voice. Look there. See that you do not refuse him who's speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Because he warned on earth and the other he warned from heaven, it sounds like it's two separate voices, but really it's the same voice. The difference is the emphasis on where this voice is heard from, not on who's speaking. I'll talk about that in a minute. But why do I argue it's the same voice? Look at verse 26. At that time, under Moses anyway, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That's in Haggai. The Lord is the one who shook the earth. The Lord is the one who will shake the heavens and the earth. And the voice who shakes the heavens and the earth is God. More specifically, this voice who shook the heavens and the earth is the eternal Son of God by the Spirit who is speaking. God spoke to them through prophets in the Old Testament. Now he speaks to us in the Son. The Son of God incarnate, enfleshed, as the one who came in the womb of the virgin, speaks. And the warning is that old covenant Israel, the old covenant people of God, the church under Moses, did not listen. They didn't listen. But new covenant Israel, the people of God, the church under the gospel, should not repeat that error. That's what he's saying. We are to listen with faith and obedience. Throughout Hebrews, we're told God is speaking to us in the Son, and thus we need to listen. The contrast is continually the contrast between the old covenant church under the law of Moses versus the new covenant church under the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Keep your hand in Hebrews 12 and look over at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26. You'll see that contrast. For if we, that is the new covenant church, most specifically the Hebrew Christians, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that's the gospel, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If you didn't listen to Moses, you were put to death. Now listen, how much, verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands 
all of the living God. These continual warnings throughout Hebrews are that you need to listen. You hear what the Word of God says, you trust and obey what the Word of God says. It's really that simple. But I want to drill down a little bit more into this question of where he's speaking to them because that's going to establish my point that it's actually the Son of God speaking both at Mount Sinai and here in the New Covenant. Where is he speaking to them? I said the Son of God spoke to both the Old Covenant Church and the New Covenant Church. Where did he speak to the Old Covenant Church? At Mount Sinai. How do I know it was the Son of God who spoke to the Old Covenant Church at Mount Sinai? How do I know that? Who spoke to Israel at Sinai? That's really the question. Well, the Lord who brought Israel out of Egypt is the one who spoke to them. Yahweh, their Redeemer, who brought them out of Egypt is the one who spoke to them. Now, we might be able to say, well, God brought them out of Egypt. And that's true because all the works of our Trinitarian God, one being three persons, all the works of our Trinitarian God are indivisible. So that what our triune God does, God does. That's true. But certain works of our triune God are eminently attributed to each person in our triune God. For example, the incarnate Son of God died on the cross, not the Father. The Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost, not the Son. The Father in love sent the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we can go on. But the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So who is imminently attributed with redeeming Israel from Egypt? That's really the question. Which person in God is attributed with redeeming Israel from Egypt? With caring for Israel in the wilderness? With speaking to Israel at Mount Sinai? And the answer is the Son of God. I'm not just making that up. Look at Jude 5. You might say it's not chapter 5. Just go to Jude. It's the book right before Revelation. It's just verse 5. One chapter, Jude, verse 5. It's a little tiny letter right before Revelation. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Who saved them out of the land of Egypt? Jesus did. Who was the bread who came down from heaven and fed them in the wilderness? Jesus was. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Keep your hand in Hebrews 12 still. And go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. It's talking about Israel and the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Who fed them in the wilderness? Who gave them water in the wilderness? Christ. Who led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea? Christ. Go down to verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test, or the Lord, which in Pauline literature is always a reference to Christ. There's a textual issue there. But we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. In other words, some of the people in Israel put who to the test when they disobeyed the word? Christ. Who spoke the law to them that they then put to the test and disobeyed? Christ. Christ did. Jesus, the Son of God, spoke to the people from Mount Sinai. The earth shook, and they begged him to stop speaking. 
Now where did and does he speak to us? Look at Hebrews 12, 25 again. See that you do not refuse him who's speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, that's at Mount Sinai, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. He warned them on earth. Now it says he warned from heaven. Where did and does Jesus speak to us from? From heaven. What does this mean? From heaven in the incarnate Christ. Listen to what John 3.31 says. He who comes from above is above all. This is Jesus. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus, the Son of God who spoke at Mount Sinai, condescended, taking humanity to himself, and spoke to us as he walked among us. That's why when Jesus is transfigured into heavenly glory at the Mount of Transfiguration, as Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets stand near, we hear the Father say, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Here comes the command, listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus, the Son of God, came from heaven and spoke from heaven. He spoke in his life, in his death, and his resurrection, and he still speaks by the Spirit through his church. In Acts 1.1, we're opened up, Luke tells us, that in my last book, O Theophilus, in the gospel that I wrote to you where I told you all about Jesus' incarnation, life, ministry, death, and resurrection, in that book, I told you about all that Jesus began to do and speak. Because he's still doing and speaking. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he still speaks to his church in his word and by his spirit. And we should not refuse him who speaks to us. But what did he speak to us? What did he speak that's being compared here? The old covenant church received the height of their privilege at Sinai when God spoke to them. You understand that? When you come to a place and God covenants with you and he speaks to you, that's the height of your privilege right there. God gave them the law or what we might call the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. He gave them their church-state constitution, if you will. Say, what was the national constitution of Israel? The Mosaic Covenant. That was their constitution for their church-state. Here's how he would govern them as a church-state until the Messiah came. He would govern them by the law. They were to trust and obey his law. His law taught them of their need for the Christ to come and save them taught them. Paul talks about that. It's a pedagogue leading them to Christ. His law governed their state government, told them how to deal with things like capital punishment or various crimes that happened. He gave them a priesthood with the Levitical priest to go between them and God. He gave them a sacrificial system that was needed due to their sin, a sacrificial system that pointed them to the fact that one day the Lamb of God would come who takes away the sins of the world, the one who would come and atone for them. He gave them a physical tabernacle that they were to build, instructions for that. And he would dwell with them in that tabernacle. The Son of God would go with them in the tabernacle. And he would guide them by his Spirit. He would care for them. He would be their shepherd. He would provide prophets to speak to them. 
priests to intercede and offer atonement for their sin, and kings to rule them righteously. He would conquer their enemies and bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. He would provide all these physical types. When I say a type, I mean something that's pointing forward to something greater than itself. So think of a picture. If I have a picture of my wife, that's the type. And when she walks in, that's the substance, the real thing, the anti-type, the one who fulfills the type. These were types and shadows. They were awaiting fulfillment of them all in the coming Christ, the Messiah, the Savior and Lord. Here's the point. None of what was happening in the church state of Israel under Moses' covenant was ever meant to be considered as permanent. It was temporary. It was typological, appointed forward of what was to come in the Christ. It was the temporary state of the church under the old covenant. And how did they respond to the Lord speaking to them? Look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18. How did the old covenant church respond when the Lord spoke to them? For you have not come to what may be touched, this is you as the new covenant saints, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, It's talking about what's happening at Mount Sinai when God spoke. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers, listen, beg that no further message be spoken to them. How do they respond when the Lord spoke to them? They begged he'd stop. You think sometimes, if the Lord would just rend the heavens and come down and speak to me, that would be glorious. The text of Scripture tells you you'd beg him to stop. Unshielded by the righteousness of Christ, you would beg him to stop. And they do. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 5, 25-27. I want you to hear it. You don't have to turn there. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. In other words, Moses, you go listen to him speak, and then come back and tell us, and we'll obey. And here's what we see in Hebrews 12, 25. That word where it says in verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who's speaking. That word refuse is the same Greek word as the word beg in verse 19. Don't be like the old covenant saints who beg God to stop talking to them. Don't refuse to listen. He's telling us again and again in this letter not to be like that. We need to listen to Jesus. Here's the point. If the Son of God spoke to them a good word of promise, if the Son of God spoke to them, Old Covenant Israel, a good word of promise, he speaks to us an even better word of fulfillment. If he spoke a good word to them through the prophets, he speaks an even better word to us in the incarnate Son. If he spoke to them on earth as the mountain thundered, he speaks to us an even better word in his incarnation as the angels sang. If he spoke to them a good word in providing the Levitical priests, he speaks to us an even better word in providing an eternal priest. If he spoke to them a good word in the sacrificial system, he speaks to us an even better word in the sacrifice at the cross where Christ offered himself once for all to put an end to sin. If he spoke to them a good word in the provision of a Davidic king, he speaks an even better word to us in the eternal King Jesus who sits at the right hand of God on his throne forever. If he spoke to them a good word in his dwelling in the tabernacle and temple in Jerusalem, he speaks to us an even better word as the word who became flesh, the Son of God, dwelling, the word tabernacling, among us. If he spoke to them a good word in the justice of the law of Moses, 
he speaks to us an even better word in his death on the cross, a word of grace. If he spoke to them a good word in the Exodus, out of slavery in Egypt, listen, he speaks to us an even better word in his Exodus, out of death and the grave in his resurrection from the dead. If he spoke to them a good word in constituting Old Covenant Israel, his Old Covenant Church, he speaks an even better word to us in constituting New Covenant Israel, his New Covenant Church. So when they rejected the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, that brought death. How much worse do you think is the punishment if you trample the Son of God underfoot in the New Covenant? If they did not escape when they refused to listen to him whose voice shook the earth, How much less will you escape if you refuse his voice who shook the heavens and the earth? Beloved, do not refuse to listen to him who is speaking. That's the grave exhortation given to us. Now let's try to look quickly at the glorious reality that's ours. There's a glorious reality that's ours now. Look at Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's our glorious privilege. We've received the kingdom of Christ. Pay attention to this. The kingdom that cannot be shaken is already ours. It's not just going to be ours in the future when Christ returns to consummate all things in the new heavens and new earth, it's presently ours. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's not just a kingdom we're waiting for someday. It's a kingdom that is presently ours. To consider this glorious reality, I want to look at the two contrasting kingdoms that are inferred here and expressly spoken of in verse 26 and 27, how we participate in the manner in which we participate in that kingdom and our proper response to it, and just want to do that briefly. Let's talk about these two contrasting kingdoms, a kingdom that can be shaken, which was once had, and a kingdom that cannot be shaken, which is now ours. Look at verse 26 and 27. At that time, under Old Testament Israel, at the making of the Old Covenant Mount Sinai, at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he is promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. I want you to notice first, we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So this shaking of the heavens and earth has already occurred. What's being said here? Well, he's saying that Christ's voice shook the earth at Sinai, And later in the prophets, in the book of Haggai, Christ promised to shake the heavens and the earth. He will shake the heavens and the earth so that the things that have been made, the earthly things, remain no longer. Earthly things or things that have been made are temporal things. They are things that can be made with human hands. They're changing things, things which come to an end. Things like temples and tabernacles and golden ephods and sacrificial systems. What are the specific earthly things or things that have been made that Haggai is referring to which our author in Hebrews is quoting from. Well, Haggai is speaking to the way that God dwelt with his people in the Old Covenant, the way he dwelt with them. He dwelt with them in the tabernacle, in the temple. In Haggai 1, the people are being condemned. You guys may remember this. They're being condemned for not caring about the great privilege they have of God dwelling with them in the temple. 
where they can worship him. Just keep your hand in Hebrews 12 and look over at Haggai. If you're not familiar with where that is, it's one of the minor prophets, the major prophets, which are in the last third of the Old Testament. The major prophets are called major because they're long books. It's really that simple. The minor prophets are called minor because they're short books. So that's it. That's the whole reason. Why are they major and minor? Long, short, that's all. It's not as exciting as it sounds or as mysterious as, ooh, you know the minor prophets. Yeah. Okay. So Haggai in chapter one, I'm going to read one through four. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's the temple where God dwells among them. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Here's the charge. You care about making nice homes for yourself, but you don't care about the temple of God where he dwells with you. You care about your own physical needs, but you don't care about dwelling with the Lord. Dwelling with the Lord is your great privilege. They didn't care about worshiping him, so the Lord rebuked them. He rebukes them in the rest of Haggai 1. I'm not going to read that. They repent, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them, and they begin rebuilding the temple. And then we hear this in Haggai 2, verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. Come in where? Into the temple. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord. In other words, there's a coming latter days temple, a glorious temple, greater than the temple that was at first, one into which the nations will stream. And when this latter day temple comes, there will be a shaking of the heavens and earth. And a new temple that cannot be shaken will be put in its place. A new temple where peace rules will be put in its place. He's speaking about the coming new covenant tabernacle. He is speaking to the coming new covenant kingdom. Now listen, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14 of John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. He is the glorious new covenant temple in whom God dwells. And all those who are united to him through faith by the Spirit are the temple of God that goes to all nations. He's speaking about the new covenant kingdom. He now dwells in his church, the new covenant temple. That old covenant, temporary, typical, changeable kingdom has come to an end with the ending of Moses' covenant was abrogated. Moses' covenant came to an end. That was something that was made, if you will, with human hands that can be shaken. This temple is not made with human hands. It cannot be shaken. And we've come to this temple, the everlasting, unchanging, permanent, anti-typical, in other words, fulfilling kingdom. 
of the new covenant is now here. It's ours. And we receive this kingdom. And this kingdom is the new creation kingdom that will one day be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. So how do we participate in this kingdom? It's real simple. Look at verse 28 of Hebrews 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for, but receiving a kingdom. Note how passive that is. We don't earn a right to this kingdom. We don't build or expand this kingdom. We receive this kingdom. Receive it. Say, well, don't we do something else? We pray for it in the Lord's Prayer. We seek it. We proclaim it. In other words, good news. I've been brought in the kingdom. So can you. How? You receive it. How? The gracious gift of God. The gracious gift of God. God came to weak and weary sinners like us, and he saved us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, transferred us, not will someday transfer you, has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. That's such good news. How do we receive it? Listen to 1 Peter 2. But you, this is speaking of the new covenant kingdom, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's not someday, that's now. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You didn't go running into his marvelous light. You weren't looking for his marvelous light. When the light of God's law came upon you, when the light of truth comes upon you, it's like light shining into a dark room. And if it were just to your heart, you'd be like the little cockroaches that run right on out. But he called you. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Christian, there is such good news. Now you have received mercy. You are his people. In light of such glorious news, what's our proper response? We'll look at Hebrews 12, 28. He just says two things here, briefly. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. So two things. Let us be grateful. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. I want to look at each briefly. Let us be grateful. We are to be thankful for God's grace. We should be thanking God all the time for his grace, though I don't think in the Greek text this is what this is a good translation of that text. I say, what, really? No, the Greek literally says, let us have grace. I'm not going to prove this to you because we'll go way too long. But in the context of Hebrews, I think he's saying, let us hold fast to the gospel. We hold fast to the gospel. You hear this kind of language in Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us have grace. That's what he's saying. Let's hold fast to the gospel of grace in Christ. We've received this glorious gift of grace. Let us hold fast to it. Let us cling tightly to it. Listen, when your sin and your unworthiness overwhelm you, hold fast to the gospel of God's grace. Further, for those of you who aren't so overwhelmed by guilt, when you start to believe your own press and think more highly of yourself than you ought, you also need to hold fast to the gospel of God's grace. Let's look at the second response. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. What is acceptable worship? We sort of have a sense of what reverence and awe look like, but what is acceptable worship? And who judges whether your worship is acceptable? 
I think sometimes we get out of whack here. Of course, acceptable worship is speaking both to the offerer of worship and the offering of worship. What do I mean by that? God would not allow an unclean priest to enter his presence, nor could a clean priest bring an unclean offering into his presence. Thus, the person drawing near to worship the Lord and what they offer the Lord, both must be acceptable. Both. The person drawing near must draw near in Christ. All worship, listen, all worship outside of Christ is unacceptable worship. It's idolatrous worship. Jesus does not look down on idolatrous worship and go, well, they're doing their best. The problem is we tried to do our best and that was a failure. So we trust in the one who did it for us. All worship must be offered. So the offerer is acceptable only through faith in Jesus Christ. Further, the person drawing near must offer what God commands. The offering itself must be acceptable. In view of God's mercy, we are to offer ourselves as what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You offer yourself every day. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. And we're to do so in accordance with his word. We serve, if you will, as God dictates. Why? Because God judges your service or your worship. He's the one who determines whether it's acceptable or not. I think we all need to stop and consider that just for a brief second. Who determines whether your worship is acceptable or not? God does. He tells you in his word what he wants from his people. You don't just offer whatever you think is acceptable. You don't just live however you think is pleasing. Our modern assumption is that whatever pleases me must please God. That's just idolatrous. And it's not as modern as you think. You can find it all the way back in the early books of the Old Testament, all the way back in Genesis 4 with Cain. Folks tried the same thing in Old Covenant Israel, and what did God do with them when they brought whatever pleased them? He wiped them out. And God is no less serious now. That's what verse 29 is saying, for our God is a consuming fire. That's citing Deuteronomy 4.24, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden you, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. We have no right to do what pleases us if he does not ask for it or if he forbids it. No right. And there are two immediate manifestations of how that happens among us. First, God wants me to be happy. Thus, he considers my life and my choices acceptable. But this makes me happy, and God wants me to be happy. So it must be acceptable to him. That's just remaking God into your image. Second, God wants me to enjoy corporate worship. I'd enjoy it. Thus, my personal pleasure and enjoyment is the measure of whether he accepts our worship. Worship was good today. How do you know? What that means is I enjoyed it. I liked it. But folks, who cares? I mean, honestly, you're not the one being worshipped. Thus, you're not the judge of whether it was good. God is. Our worship, both in daily life and corporate gatherings, is judged on the basis of God's word. Thus, we listen to Christ as he speaks to us by his spirit in his word. Sovereign Grace, in a day with so many competing voices, so many distracting sights, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Listen to Jesus who speaks a better word to you, a word of grace. Listen to Jesus in whom you've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Little children, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, and so he has in his Son. We should rejoice and listen to him. 
Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for Christ. We're thankful that he has spoken to his people as the word, that he has spoken to his people in the old covenant and the new covenant, that he has spoken to us law and gospel, that he has made promises which he has fulfilled. We are thankful that he is our redeemer, the forgiveness for our sins, our righteousness and wisdom and sanctification, the one to whom we look, who has made us in himself a new creation, a part of the new covenant church, a kingdom which cannot be shaken. May we trust him. May we hold fast to grace. May we offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For we know that you, our God, are a consuming fire. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.